This is episode 390 of the Prepper Website Podcast, where I connect you with resources that will help you live a more self-reliant life so you can love your people, get prepared, and live free. Today's article, Self-Sufficiency Superstars, Picking a Chicken. Hey, I'm Todd Sepulveda, the editor of PrepperWebsite.com. This podcast is an audible version with some commentary of articles that have been posted on Prepper Website, a daily curation of preparedness information. These articles are some of the best of the best that have been recently posted on PrepperWebsite.com. All article links and show information can be found on the PrepperWebsitePodcast.com. Everyone, this episode is sponsored by my ebook, The Preparedness Community's Guide to a Microbiz and Increasing Your Finances. If you'd like some more information on the ebook and on the Prepper Website forums, click the link in the show notes or come on over to the PrepperWebsitePodcast.com. Hey, before we get started reading the article that we have for this podcast, I want to point out an article that I read on uh, Martin Armstrong's website, Armstrong Economics, and it's entitled, The Hunger Stones Have Appeared. Now, uh, I'm not going to read the whole article to you. In fact, I think this is so interesting that, and I had never heard of the Hunger Stones before, uh, before this before this article. So, I mean, they've been around for a very long time. You're going you're gonna to see that here in just a minute. But uh, I thought it was so interesting. I shared it on the Facebook group, and I'm also sending it out in the email list because I just think it's something uh, that everybody should kind of be aware of. But anyway, let me. Uh, I want to read just a few lines of this and uh, and go from uh, and, and go from there. And then I'm going to leave the link in the show notes so that you can go and check this out. And you, I'm, I'm sure you'll be very interested uh, in it, and especially those that are uh, more you know into history and stuff like that. And then those of you that are just the the preparedness self reliant aspect of it is going to uh, is probably going to pique your interest. But um, here we go. So the swing the swings from extreme heat to extreme cold are also not unheard of. Another piece of historical evidence they ignore is known as the hunger stones. Pictured here is a hunger stone from 1616, which has been exposed by the low level of water in the Elbe River. This is at Dessen in the Czech Republic. Throughout the centuries, there have been these cycles of extreme heat followed by extreme cold. Such events have been recorded when drought has resulted in the low level of water in the Elbe River. So very interesting as the river recedes because of drought and because of extreme heat, these stones start to appear. And so uh, I'm going to continue reading a couple of lines here. This year's drought in Europe has exposed once again the hunger stones that have been used for centuries to commemorate Historic droughts which warn of their consequences when you see these stones again. The hunger stones are visible in the Elbe River once more. This is a major river which begins in the Czech Republic Republic, and flows through Germany. Alright, so let me uh, continue. I'm going to skip down here. The droughts that have been recorded on the stones date to, get this, 1417, 1616, 1707, 1746, 1790, 1800, 1830, 1842, 1868, 1892, and 1893. Now, uh, for those of you that are familiar with Martin Armstrong's work, he really looks at cycles. He looked at that 1892 and 1893, and he really says that that was more of, uh, it wasn't two years in a row, it was more of a peak, uh, peak drought there at that point. 
one one year was a, a peak drought. But if you look at all of these, of course, they start bringing out cycles. And again, that's one of the things that he looks at uh, and one of the things that he um, he tracks on a regular basis. So anyway, so this article talks a little bit about uh, drought. It talks, uh, you know, about volcanoes and how that adds to the weather and how that uh, changes the weather patterns. There are some uh, really cool quotes from uh, older, uh, you know, older his or scientists actually that uh, that he quotes. And I really like when he's when he goes into his little bit in depth, more in depth articles. Right, there are some that are just really short, but he goes into some of these that are a little bit more in depth, and he brings out the historical sides of things. Uh, I really liked uh, you know reading the different the the different aspects from uh, or the quotes from scientists. You know, dating back to way, I mean, 536 A.D., right? And so, uh, you know, 1166 A.D., um, around there, 485. I mean, those are those were birth dates, right? But around those times, I mean, those are big times. Uh, you know, those are really far back there where scientists were recording. And so there is a historical document that you can kind of go back there. But I want to read the last line here or the last couple of uh, lines in the in the last paragraph just to kind of just you know let you know where it was all kind of going um, he is not a prepper he is not you know uh, doom and gloom type of guy uh, but he says this here we are left on our own to understand the real consequences and that the hunger stones prove that this is not a unique event by co2 and driving to work food prices will rise into the 2024 period. You should not simply just prepare for a commodity rally, but be wise and have some stashed away as a hedge. This is not the end of the world doom and gloom stuff. It is simply looking at cycles and it will pass as it always has. All right, so definitely it will pass as it always has, but those that have not prepared and those that aren't thinking about things like that and those that have not put back, even like uh, Martin Armstrong was suggesting here, are going to feel a little bit of pain. They will get through it with a little bit of pain. And so that's why we prep. We, we prep to mitigate that. So that's if everything goes as planned. That, that's, you know, this is just the drought aspect of it. This is not taking into account all the economy. This is not taking into account all the other crazy things that can, that can go on out there. This is just one little thing out there, you know, one plate spinning uh, amidst a bunch of other plates that are spinning. And so uh, I just thought that was just so interesting as I was reading it during lunch today. And uh, I'm going to link to it in the show notes, like I said. And you can go read the whole thing where he talks about volcanoes and and, uh, all of that kind of stuff and how that affects the weather patterns and uh, the mini ice ages and things like that that uh, really destroyed crops and food and really caused a lot of uh you know pain and uh starvation for people out there because there wasn't uh, a lot of food they weren't able to grow their own food all right so uh, again that's uh, the hunger stones have appeared over at armstrongeconomics.com all right so let's go ahead and jump into our article of the podcast it comes to us from the prepperjournal.com i think this is a very good article on uh picking a chicken for your backyard and uh, for you know your backyard chicken coops, 
uh, or if you are you know on a bigger scale there's a lot of good information here because when it comes to backyard chickens sometimes it's like hey let's go to our tractor supply or let's go to someone where we a local person where we can get some chickens and we kind of just settle for whatever's there um, sometimes you might order if you're ordering a bigger you know number of of, uh, of chickens or chicks uh, you might order online and uh, you know you need to be ready for them when they come but for the most part uh, you know if you're if you have a small little flock you might not be doing that so it's a good idea to know what kind of chickens you want to have in the backyard because it you know it will determine a whole lot of uh, of your sanity you know in dealing with it so uh, let's go ahead and jump into this article like I said I think this is a very good one uh, for anyone who's who's thinking about having backyard chickens or having chickens. And I really truly believe everyone should. Uh, and so this is why I think this is a good article for everyone. All right, so here we go. Let's go ahead and start. I should say right now that chickens are at or near the bottom of the list of my favorite self-reliance animals right there with horses. I just don't like chickens. They started it. However, as a homestead animal, they're absolutely indispensable as opposed to horses, which I love but don't find efficient and thus stick in the pet category. Chickens feed efficiency, are multifunctional, and able to perform labor tasks that make them fantastic livestock for backyards and big acreage homesteads. They eat things my preferred game birds can't and perform functions the non-diggers or non-grazers won't or can't. There are pros and cons to any animal, and birds are no different. As a permaculturist and a prepper with a mind towards long-term sustainability, I have a specific list of considerations when it comes to picking my chickens. Those list items are why a few of the commonly recommended breeds don't make my superstar list. For example, I like buckeye hens, but the roos are commonly way more space aggressive than I want. Others drop off the list due to production when expected to free range. 70% of their feed heat stress or low tolerance to confinement pinning. Some breeds are bullies that don't share mixed barnyards well. Some drop because their feathers are tougher to pull than ducks. Some are way too hair triggered and panicky for me. And there, guys, there's just a lot of pictures here that are just hilarious. Alternatively, some are oblivious to threats. Some pile up in a corner of a pen where a raccoon can reach through. Some stand stupidly staring at the sky while the ducks, doves, guineas, and smart chickens are bobbing in. I'm up, they see me, I'm down, sprints for a cover or low crawling under edges towards the dogs or Mr. Mother Goose. Poultry are very situationally dependent and they are always exceptions. I'll go into the factors that affect my choices after my pick chicken shortlist. Any prepper can use the traits as a checklist even if my preferences aren't as important or completely oppose their priorities. All right, so here are the superstar breeds. The first one is the wellies of the Welsh summers. Six to seven pounds, foragers but comfortable with confinement. Two to four eggs per week. They green graze to buggy lots, seed grain lots, or bag feeds. Medium eggs, heat and cold hardy. They're savvy, friendly, and curious personalities medium average broodiness a european breed is popular in australia for ease and production as rirs or rhode island reds orps 
Plymouth Rocks and Wyandots are here in the U.S. Cane surrogates for hatching and raising guinea fowl, turkey, or quail. The next one is the Dominique. Six to seven pounds, foragers but comfortable with confinement, two to four eggs a week, small, medium eggs mostly, cold and humid heat hardy, savvy, calm and curious personalities, average broodiness, super mothers, popular from colonial and pioneer times through the Great Depression due to ease and efficiency in keeping, then almost lost as modern production breeds started taking over. Cold weather layers, seldom overeaters, self-coop if coop-raised, shrewd, strange, friend-foe discrimination, chill with the kids and known dogs, but not pecking order pushovers. The next one is the Sussex, 7 to 9 pounds, foragers but comfortable with confinement, 3 to 5 eggs a week, medium-large eggs, cold-tolerant, okay-decent heat tolerance, Savvy roosters, and there's an asterisk here. I'll get to that one in a minute. Confident but calm personalities. Average broodiness. Very old breed. Once the standard English table bird. Dethroned by the Cornish. Prone to tender flesh and fattiness. Fats are a good thing for self-sufficiency and survival. Very non-flight prone. Incredibly efficient and low-waste eaters. Early and late season layers with year-round laying possibilities. Okay, here's that asterisk. The Sussex hens respond to rue, flock, keeper, and LGD warnings, but are typically just a little less stranger danger and foot traffic traffic observant on their own than my other picks. Continuing on with the Sussex, the Sussex hens are surprisingly human-oriented tagalongs. <laughs> Not always a good thing. And there's another asterisk here. The wellies and the Sussex hens are so chill they're likely to be low bird on the totem pole. Introduce them to mixed flocks with a handful of other birds, not as individuals. All right, so the next one is Reds, Woman, Reds. Yeah, I skipped the Rhode Island Reds or the RIRs and the less common Rhode Island Whites and Blacks and New Hampshire Reds. They are hugely popular backyard and homestead birds. However, they're excellent Five weak layers with extra large eggs that further tax feed and calcium needs. All roos are rough lovers, but RIRs and NHRs, or the that's Rhode Island Reds and the New Hampshire Reds, seem excessively so, especially in small flock situations. I also find Rhode Island's excessively destructive and messy compared to other breeds. Both also tend to classify all dogs, cats, and humans in the same categories, either all good or all bad, and aren't keen at individual recognition. That's a problem here. All right, so now he goes into, and so that was a very short list. Now he goes into the top priorities that, uh, you know, the things that he's looking for in the chickens and why he picked these chickens to be his superstars. So the first thing I want out of my birds is the ability to reproduce them, which means a purebred and a rooster I can stand long enough to breed. That's kind of funny there. I t- and I'm just saying that because I have some friends uh, that live nearby uh, w- where I live, and they had a rooster that went crazy. And uh, uh, my friend, she was a teacher friend, and the rooster clawed her chest and all up and down. And uh, that that rooster did not last the day. But uh, you know, they she got she got pretty hurt because this rooster went after her. I can't remember what kind of uh, 
I want to say say maybe they were Red Island Reds uh, or Rhode Island Reds, but I'm not 100% sure. But I just know she was pretty, pretty torn up. All right, so continuing on. I typically trail heritage and dual purpose breeds. They're more likely to both lay and eat and to be foragers willing and predator savvy than the production breeds and dedicated laying or meat breeds. They're also a smidge more likely to have retained the ability to sit their own broods politely without me fighting constant broodiness, which lets me skip electric incubators and brooder boxes. I also want mothers to be able to raise clutches within the flock so I don't have to segregate, then introduce flock members. Mothering hens need to be canny to chick threats, including foot and equipment tool traffic, but not over defensive. So here are some of the breed traits. Flighty versus docile. Docile birds are less likely to have excellent risk awareness, water, predators, egg care. But flighty birds are commonly pin and tree hoppers, hard to handle and noisier. The calm savvy line is a tough one to walk, which is one reason my short list of breed is actually short. And so the, the next one is broody balance. Willingness and ability to sit eggs, theirs and other poultries, keep a clean nest or relatively, while eating and drinking well, but not constantly fighting to keep hens from hiding and stealing chicks or eggs from other birds and sitting eggs and rocks and tennis balls, etc. Alright, so mothering. They're able to care for 10 to 16 chicks, protecting them from predators and the flock, teaching them hunting and foraging keeping them warm and out of thick, wet grass, but not smothering them or excessively guarding. Then the rooster behavior. Good flock provider, accurate predator savviness, but relatively quiet and easy handling. Relatively equals for roo. Because you're still going to have uh, you know rooster, uh, rooster personalities there coming out. All right, the next one is the rooster weight. All but one rooster every two to six years is going to hit a pot, so I want a breed that gains relatively well in the three to nine month harvest age window as opposed to being excessively lean teens. Then breast meat. Many dual purpose and layer breed birds lack significant breast portions. It's not a must have, but it is a big check mark for me if pullets and roos develop decent breast meat. And then camouflage. I like breeds with colors that blend into the terrain. I don't mind the skin color undulations or darker skins on meat from colorful birds versus the uniform white pink of most market birds. Bared, laced, and speckled plumage, even the stark white black zebra type, camo sometimes surprisingly well in pasture, bare runs, snow, and dappled edges. They do better against predators, especially when they typically cluster elbow to elbow to forage, run, and to roost. Forage efficiency. I want birds to free range from pasture, compost, garden orchard spaces, scrub, and woods. We've bred both the inclination and ability out of many breeds. I also want breeds with the least production loss on green grazing and green protein forages versus seed nut and bug heavy seasons or areas and then flight pasturing pinning and evening recouping is easier with breeds that are just disinclined to leaving the earth versus normal tree roosting and flight happy breeds and then laying balance 
I typically look for breeds listed with mediocre to middling laying rates. Somebody just fell out of their chair. The thing is, egg production is one of the tweaks we've made along the way, like our leaner pigs, faster growing meat animals, and dairy production. It's based on cheap, easily accessible grain feeds. Even heritage breeds listed as both excellent foragers and layers aren't reaching their 200 to 275 eggs a year on just pasture. Humans are hand-delivering 50 to 75% of their nutrients. So um, there's very interesting graphics here where uh, they're showing chickens from like 1957 to 1978 to 2005. And then they're, they're showing like zero days, 28 days, and 56 days. And so, you know, the 2005 and then the 1978 are just so much bigger. And uh, again, going back to the fact that, you know, we're, we're providing so much of their feed. And the feed is, uh, you know, usually has things to help these animals grow. So there is a link here. Uh, it's a nice article, Modern Chicken Timeline, 1900 to the present. And so there's a link that you can go to if you want to uh, you know, research that aspect of it that I was just talking about, that graphic. Without that feeding and without heating or cooling and 12 plus hours of light, most of those better breeds rapidly lose productivity, hitting 100 to 150 eggs a year ceiling. I want birds free-ranging 70-plus percent of their soft-seasons feed. The middling production breeds typically retain more of their optimum laying and weight gain in those conditions, ending up with larger total yields in side-by-side comparisons with a better bird. Two, hens need a lot of calcium to maintain successful laying and bone density. High-yield layers need more and faster-absorbing sources and can get less of their total need percentage from forage and free-choice ground eggshells. Tons of fragile eggs that crack in the boxes or basket do me less good than a smaller number of hardy eggs before we even get to layer breeder losses from deficiencies and injuries. The Condition and the Age Production Resilience Resistance to production drop in lowering light and lower temperatures Reduced lumps in second, third, and fourth year laying. My goal, average decreases of 8 to 10% per year versus 12 to 15%. Then looking at range and space versatility. The willingness to wander for forage, but also comfortable being pinned or barned for 8 to 16 hours a day and for days and weeks at a time. Bird and produce harvest safety, pasture regrowth, evacuation crates and trailers, weather, theft, predator risk, injury, disease quarantine, flooding, and assessments. So all those things are reasons to uh, coop them up. Or if they're foraging, and then the reasons to coop them up, and they need to be able to be good with that. And then uh, midsize. The best fit for my predator load, efficiency desires, and climate. Wet winters with teens, uh, minus 20s in the lows, then 95 to 100 plus with 80 to 95 percent humidity come July and August. Man, I would almost say, like, where do they live? They got to live definitely uh, close to me, I would say, although we don't go to the teens, right? So I don't know. A lot of uh, southern states would be able to do that on the coast uh, and and have all that um, humidity. Man, and 100, 100 plus degrees. I'm telling you, that's that's so bad for uh, for animals out there. All right, so feathering. This is really climate specific, but I prefer clean legs and short, light featherings on thighs, 
heads, and spouts. The smoother they are, the less dirty they get. You still have to provide leaves, straw, and mulch to soak up seasonal mud and waste. So here's a rule for th- of thumb. For cool to frigid climates, you want a rounder, medium to heavy breed with tight, dense feathering, fluffy undercoat, and small combs, or lessens, that lessens the frostbite. Some want feathered legs and feet. Some of us feel that just collects snow and cold spring mud, then chills the birds. If you have warm to hot climates, you typically want lighter built birds with naked or clean feet and larger combs for the heat transfer. So picking a chicken. Many of my checkpoints don't apply to people with less interest in long-term sustainability and self-reliance or who only deliver bagged feed to a permanent coop with less movement. Climate, interaction, and individual needs and abilities factor hugely in appointing superstar status. Marins and leg bars max out at 120 to 180 eggs a year, but they can near that max on trash grass and pine fir woods forage. For some preppers, that might outweigh the low ceiling and other traits. Others might choose high-yield layers or prefer fast-turned meat birds for a variety of reasons. Bantams or ornamentals that will only reach quail-level meat and egg yields but are smaller or quieter may suit others best. Varying preferences are how we got all these choices in the first place. Most homesteaders and backyard keepers run multiple breeds and types of poultry, even when we've settled on a primary because of the diversity. Do your research, like multiple source research. Don't ignore breed and experience needed warnings, but experiment. It's easy to trial multiple breeds even with just a handful of starter birds. At most, it'll cost an extra $0.25 to $3 a chick to mix and match breeds when ordering them. And then there's this last asterisk here. Do pay extra for sex tens and limit your root populations if you're just getting started. For some general pointers, there are chicken-specific sections in, and there's some links here to the Prepper Journal, other articles that you can check out. But I think that's a, a, an interesting article here. Again, you know where they're the thinking about the um, you know the type of birds, and there's just so much to consider when you're thinking about that, right? So I wanted to go back and just uh, briefly touch on. I think there was three that uh, that this article listed here, and so I wanted to share them one more time with you. So the first ones were the the wellies or the well summers, and then there were the Dominiques or Dominique. And then Sussex. So those were the three, really, that they uh, that they uh, they talked on. And then uh, he skips on the Rhode Island Reds uh, on all that. But anyway, uh, very interesting. And if you are uh, if you are looking to to have some backyard chickens, definitely do some research here. Um, you know, you might have you know a situation where you're just going to have them in a coop in a big coop. Maybe you have a run that allows them to, you know, I that was something that I was about to set up, um, you know, where I had a run that would go uh, the edge of the uh, the fence line, you know, the the backyard, so that they would be able to stretch their legs, but also be able to eat insects and do a little bit of foraging there. Um, but you know, you might you might not want that. You might just want them in the coop, and it's easy, and you go clean it, and you don't have to worry about it. I mean, I know that. Uh, I've mentioned this one that uh, the day that I put or maybe the second day that I had the chickens out there, uh, I had a hawk, a humongous hawk 
come and land on my fence and it was just eyeing them and uh, i was there i mean i was i wasn't too far from the chickens but he was just eyeing them but i guess he realized like hey they're cooped up i'm not going to be able to get them uh and so you know that's that's just that and uh, i wish i would have had my my phone with me i didn't have my phone at that time i would have loved to have taken a picture of this humongous bird it was just uh it was just crazy how big he was and uh, they're flying around. I mean, actually, when we moved into the area, my father-in-law said, hey, you know, you got to be careful if you ever get a small dog because they, they've been known to take small dogs um, just because they're just humongous birds. So you have all these things that you need to think about and all these, you know, predators and, and all that kind of stuff because they will come. Eventually, they will find out where the chickens are and they will test your, you know, test your coop and they will test all your defenses and they will come after your chicken. And that is the worst thing ever when you are, uh, you know, when you have a predator going in and they ravage your, your, your chickens, man. And, uh, that just, that just sucks. I have a cousin who, uh, has, has been dealing with that, uh, as well. And so, you know, there's a lot of things to consider, but I do think that everybody should own chickens. I do think that there is a very big benefit to it. If you are, I mean, just for the eggs, you're able to, uh, you're able to have eggs on a regular basis. If you're somebody that doesn't cook eggs every single day, well then, you know, you're, you go and you get the eggs and then you have them for the weekend and you're able to make, you know, eggs for the family on the weekend. But then you have all the, the, the cleaning up and the, the, you know, the chicken poop. And if you do the deep, uh, layer method, right? Where, uh, and I'm, I'm, I'm missing that, that term. I know that I'm getting that one wrong, but basically you're putting out hay every so often, right? So, um, so the deep litter method, I, I know that's not right, but anyway, so when, when you kind of smell the coop or the coop is starting to smell, you go and throw out another layer of hay or straw. And then, uh, you know, they, that goes for a while. And then when it starts to smell again, you throw out another layer. And so when it's time to clean it up, you're able to grab all of that and you're able to go throw that in a compost pile and you're able to compost that and uh you know that's great fertilizer if you have a uh, uh if you have a garden and you can allow them to uh roam freely you know they can go and take care of all the weeds and they can turn your soil and they can do all of that so there's a lot of benefit uh to having chickens and so i really do think everyone should have uh have them i i think it's just something that uh you know, it, you should have a, what, what was it? Uh, a chicken in every pot or a chicken in every backyard, right? That's something that, uh, everybody should, uh, should at least try to have at some point. I, I just think they're very beneficial. And so I wish I had a little bit more room in my backyard to have, uh, some chickens, some more chickens. I would definitely do that in a heartbeat. All right, guys, that is over at theprepperjournal.com. Like always, I'm going to link to it in the show notes. And so uh, you can go check it out. Um, there's a lot of pictures here. This is a great article. And, uh, and so if you, you go bounce off of these articles today, the, the one from Martin Armstrong and the Prepper Journal, um, with two really good ones that you might want to take a look at. All right, everyone. So that is it for episode 390 of the Prepper Website Podcast. Hey, don't forget to subscribe to the show. You can head on over to the prepperwebsitepodcast.com and that way you never miss another episode of Sweet Prepper Goodness. And take a moment to connect with me. I have a ton of ways to connect in the show notes. And with that, choose to live a more self-reliant life. Choose not to be so dependent on the government grid or the grind. 
Until tomorrow, stay prepped and aware. Peace.